Chapter Sixteen of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Sixteen. Most remarkable. Several miles south of the cabin, upon a strip of sandy beach, stood two old men, arguing. Before them stretched the broad Atlantic. At their backs was the dark continent. Close around them loomed the impenetrable blackness of the jungle. Savage beasts roared and growled. Noises, hideous and weird, assailed their ears. They had wandered for miles in search of their camp, but always in the wrong direction. They were as hopelessly lost as though they had suddenly been transported to another world. At such a time, indeed, every fiber of their combined intellects must have been concentrated upon the vital question of the minute, the life-and-death question to them of retracing their steps to camp. Samuel T. Philander was speaking. "'But, my dear professor,' he was saying, I still maintain that but for the victories of Ferdinand and Isabella over the fifteenth-century Moors in Spain, the world would be to-day a thousand years in advance of where we now find ourselves. The Moors were essentially a tolerant, broad-minded, liberal race of agriculturalists, artisans, and merchants, the very type of people that has made possible such civilization as we find to-day in America and Europe, while the Spaniards— "'Tut, tut, dear Mr. Philander,' interrupted Professor Porter. "'Their religion positively precluded the possibilities you suggest. Moslemism was, is, and always will be a blight on that scientific progress which has marked—' "'Bless me, Professor,' interjected Mr. Philander, who had turned his gaze toward the jungle. "'There seems to be someone approaching.' Professor Archimedes Q. Porter turned in the direction indicated by the near-sighted Mr. Philander. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander,' he chided. "'How often must I urge you to seek that absolute concentration of your mental faculties which alone may permit you to bring to bear the highest powers of intellectuality upon the momentous problems which naturally fall to the lot of great minds?' and now I find you guilty of a most flagrant breach of courtesy in interrupting my learned discourse to call attention to a mere quadruped of the genus Felis. As I was saying, Mr. Heavens, Professor, a lion! cried Mr. Philander, straining his weak eyes toward the dim figure outlined against the dark tropical underbrush. Yes, yes, Mr. Philander, if you insist upon employing slang in your discourse— a lion, but as I was saying, bless me, professor, again interrupted Mr. Philander, permit me to suggest that doubtless the Moors who were conquered in the fifteenth century will continue in that most regrettable condition, for the time being at least, even though we postpone discussion of that world calamity uh, until we may attain the enchanting view of yon Felis Carnivora, which distance proverbially is credited with lending. In the meantime the lion had approached with quiet dignity to within ten paces of the two men, where he stood curiously watching them. The moonlight flooded the beach, and the strange group stood out in bold relief against the yellow sand. 
"'Most reprehensible, most reprehensible!' exclaimed Professor Porter, with a faint trace of irritation in his voice. "'Never, Mr. Philander, never before in my life have I known one of these animals to be permitted to roam at large from its cage. I shall most certainly report this outrageous breach of ethics to the directors of the adjacent zoological garden.' "'Quite right, Professor,' agreed Mr. Philander. "'And the sooner it is done, the better. Let us start now.' Seizing the professor by the arm, Mr. Philander set off in the direction that would put the greatest distance between themselves and the lion. They had proceeded but a short distance when a backward glance revealed to the horrified gaze of Mr. Philander that the lion was following them. He tightened his grip upon the protesting professor and increased his speed. "'As I was saying, Mr. Philander,' repeated Professor Porter, Mr. Philander took another hasty glance rearward. The lion also had quickened his gait, and was doggedly maintaining an unvarying distance behind them. "'He is following us!' gasped Mr. Philander, breaking into a run. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Philander,' remonstrated the professor. "'This unseemly haste is most unbecoming to men of letters. What will our friends think of us, who may chance to be upon the street and witness our frivolous antics?' Pray let us proceed with more decorum. Mr. Philander stole another observation astern. The line was bounding along in easy leaps, scarce five paces behind. Mr. Philander dropped the professor's arm and broke into a mad orgy of speed that would have done credit to any varsity track team. As I was saying, Mr. Philander, screamed Professor Porter, as, metaphorically speaking, he himself threw her into high. He, too, had caught a fleeting backward glimpse of cruel yellow eyes and half-open mouth within startling proximity of his person. With streaming coat-tails and shiny silk hat, Professor Archimedes Q. Porter fled through the moonlight close upon the heels of Mr. Samuel T. Philander. Before them a point of the jungle ran out toward a narrow promontory, and it was for the haven of the trees he saw there that Mr. Samuel T. Philander directed his prodigious leaps and bounds, while from the shadows of the same spot peered two keen eyes in interested appreciation of the race. It was Tarzan of the Apes who watched, with face a-grin, this odd game of follow the leader. He knew the two men were safe enough from attack in so far as the lion was concerned, the very fact that Numa had foregone such easy prey at all convinced the wise forest craft of Tarzan that Numa's belly already was full. The lion might stalk them into hungry again, but the chances were that if not angered he would soon tire of the sport and slink away to his jungle lair. Really, the one great danger was that one of the men might stumble and fall and then the yellow devil would be upon him in a moment, and the joy of the kill would be too great a temptation to withstand. So Tarzan swung quickly to a lower limb in line with the approaching fugitives, and as Mr. Samuel T. Philander came panting and blowing beneath him, already too spent to struggle up to the safety of the limb, Tarzan reached down and, grasping him by the collar of his coat, yanked him to the limb by his side. Another moment brought the professor within the sphere of the friendly grip, and he too was drawn upward to safety just as the baffled Numa, with a roar, leaped to recover his vanishing quarry. 
For a moment the two men clung panting to the great branch, while Tarzan squatted with his back to the stem of the tree, watching them with mingled curiosity and amusement. It was the professor who first broke the silence. "'I am deeply pained, Mr. Philander, that you should have evinced such a paucity of manly courage in the presence of one of the lower orders, and by your crass timidity have caused me to exert myself to such an unaccustomed degree in order that I might resume my discourse. As I was saying, Mr. Philander, when you interrupted me, the Moors—' "'Professor Archimedes Q. Porter!' broke in Mr. Philander, in icy tones. The time has arrived when patience becomes a crime, and mayhem appears garbed in the mantle of virtue. You have accused me of cowardice. You have insinuated that you ran only to overtake me, not to escape the clutches of the lion. Have a care, Professor Archimedes Q. Porter. I am a desperate man. Goaded by long-suffering patience, the worm will turn. Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut cautioned Professor Porter. You forget yourself. I forget nothing as yet, Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, but believe me, sir, I am tottering on the verge of forgetfulness as to your exalted position in the world of science, and your gray hairs. The professor sat in silence for a few minutes, and the darkness hid the grim smile that wreathed his wrinkled countenance. Presently he spoke. "'Look here, skinny philander,' he said in belligerent tones. "'If you are looking for a scrap, peel off your coat and come on down on the ground, and I'll punch your head just as I did sixty years ago in the alley back of Porky Evans' barn.' "'Ark!' gasped the astonished Mr. Philander. "'Lordy, how good that sounds! When you're human, Ark, I love you, but somehow it seems as though you had forgotten how to be human for the last twenty years.' The professor reached out a thin, trembling old hand through the darkness until it found his old friend's shoulder. "'Forgive me, Skinny,' he said softly. "'It hasn't been quite twenty years, and God alone knows how hard I have tried to be human for Jane's sake, and yours too, since he took my other Jane away.' Another old hand stole up from Mr. Philander's side to clasp the one that lay upon his shoulder and no other message could better have translated the one heart to the other. They did not speak for some minutes. The lion below them paced nervously back and forth. The third figure in the tree was hidden by the dense shadows near the stem. He too was silent, motionless as a graven image. "'You certainly pulled me up into this tree just in time,' said the professor at last. "'I want to thank you. You saved my life.' "'But I didn't pull you up here, Professor,' said Mr. Philander. "'Bless me! The excitement of the moment quite caused me to forget that I myself was drawn up here by some outside agency. There must be someone or something in this tree with us.' "'Eh?' ejaculated Professor Porter. "'Are you quite positive, Mr. Philander?' "'Most positive, Professor,' replied Mr. Philander. "'And,' he added, "'I think we should thank the party.' He may be sitting right next to you now, Professor. Eh? What's that? Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut, said Professor Porter, edging cautiously nearer to Mr. Philander. 
Just then it occurred to Tarzan of the Apes that Numa had loitered beneath the tree for a sufficient length of time, so he raised his young head toward the heavens, and there rang out upon the terrified ears of the two old men the awful warning challenge of the anthropoid. The two friends, huddling trembling in their precarious position on the limb, saw the great lion halt in his restless pacing as the blood-curdling cry smote his ears, and then slink quickly into the jungle to be instantly lost to view. "'Even the lion trembles in fear,' whispered Mr. Philander. "'Most remarkable, most remarkable,' murmured Professor Porter, clutching frantically at Mr. Philander to regain the balance which the sudden fright had so perilously endangered. Unfortunately for them both, Mr. Philander's centre of equilibrium was at that very moment hanging upon the ragged edge of nothing so that it needed but the gentle impetus supplied by the additional weight of Professor Porter's body to topple the devoted secretary from the limb. For a moment they swayed uncertainly, and then, with mingled and most unscholarly shrieks, they pitched headlong from the tree, locked in frenzied embrace. It was quite some moments ere either moved, for both were positive that any such attempt would reveal so many breaks and fractures as to make further progress impossible. At length Professor Porter made an attempt to move one leg. To his surprise it responded to his will as in days gone by. He now drew up its mate and stretched it forth again. "'Most remarkable, most remarkable,' he murmured. "'Thank God, Professor,' whispered Mr. Philander fervently. "'You are not dead, then?' "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut.' cautioned Professor Porter. I do not know with accuracy as yet. With infinite solicitude, Professor Porter wiggled his right arm. Joy! It was intact. Breathlessly he waved his left arm above his prostrate body. It waved. Most remarkable, most remarkable, he said. To whom are you signaling, Professor? asked Mr. Philander in an excited tone. Professor Porter deigned to make no response to this puerile inquiry. Instead he raised his head gently from the ground, nodding it back and forth a half-dozen times. "'Most remarkable,' he breathed. "'It remains intact.' Mr. Philander had not moved from where he had fallen. He had not dared the attempt. How indeed could one move when one's arms and legs and back were broken? One eye was buried in the soft loam, the other, rolling sidewise, was fixed in awe upon the strange gyrations of Professor Porter. "'How sad!' exclaimed Mr. Philander, half aloud. "'Concussion of the brain, superinducing total mental aberration. How very sad indeed! And for one still so young!' Professor Porter rolled over upon his stomach. Gingerly he bowed his back until he resembled a huge tomcat in proximity to a yelping dog. Then he sat up and felt of various portions of his anatomy. "'They are all here!' he exclaimed. "'Most remarkable!' Whereupon he arose, and bending a scathing glance upon the still-prostrate form of Mr. Samuel T. Philander, he said, "'Tut, tut, Mr. Philander!' This is no time to indulge in slothful ease. We must be up and doing. Mr. Philander lifted his other eye out of the mud and gazed in speechless rage at Professor Porter. Then he attempted to rise, 
nor could there have been any more surprise than he when his efforts were immediately crowned with marked success. He was still bursting with rage, however, at the cruel injustice of Professor Porter's insinuation, and was on the point of rendering a tart rejoinder when his eyes fell upon a strange figure, standing a few paces away, scrutinizing them intently. Professor Porter had recovered his shiny silk hat, which he had brushed carefully upon the sleeve of his coat and replaced upon his head. When he saw Mr. Flander pointing to something behind him, he turned to behold a giant, naked but for a loincloth and a few metal ornaments, standing motionless before him. "'Good evening, sir,' said the professor, lifting his hat. For reply the giant motioned them to follow him, and set off up the beach in the direction from which they had recently come. "'I think it is the better part of discretion to follow him,' said Mr. Philander. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Philander,' returned the professor. "'A short time since you were advancing a most logical argument in substantiation of your theory that camp lay directly south of us. I was sceptical, but you finally convinced me. So now I am positive that toward the south we must travel to reach our friends. Therefore I shall continue south.' "'But, Professor Porter, this man may know better than either of us. He seems to be indigenous to this part of the world. Let us at least follow him for a short distance.' "'Tut, tut, Mr. Philander,' repeated the Professor. "'I am a difficult man to convince, but when once convinced my decision is unalterable. I shall continue in the proper direction, if I have to circumambulate the continent of Africa to reach my destination.' Further argument was interrupted by Tarzan, who, seeing that these strange men were not following him, had returned to their side. Again he beckoned to them, but still they stood in argument. Presently the ape-man lost patience with their stupid ignorance. He grasped the frightened Mr. Philander by the shoulder, and before that worthy gentleman knew whether he was being killed or merely maimed for life, Tarzan had tied one end of his rope securely about Mr. Philander's neck. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Philander,' remonstrated Professor Porter. "'It is most unbeseeming in you to submit to such indignities.' But scarcely were the words out of his mouth ere he, too, had been seized and securely bound by the neck with the same rope. Then Tarzan set off toward the north, leading the now thoroughly frightened Professor and his secretary. In deathly silence they proceeded for what seemed hours to the two tired and hopeless old men, but presently, as they topped a little rise of ground, they were overjoyed to see the cabin lying before them, not a hundred yards distant. Here Tarzan released them, and, pointing toward the little building, vanished into the jungle beside them. "'Most remarkable! Most remarkable!' gasped the professor. "'But you see, Mr. Philander, that I was quite right, as usual.' and but for your stubborn willfulness we should have escaped a series of most humiliating, not to say dangerous, accidents. Pray allow yourself to be guided by a more mature and practical mind hereafter when in need of wise counsel. Mr. Samuel T. Philander was too much relieved at the happy outcome to their adventure to take umbrage at the professor's cruel fling. Instead he grasped his friend's arm and hastened him forward in the direction of the cabin. It was a much-relieved party of castaways that found itself once more united. 
Dawn discovered them still recounting their various adventures, and speculating upon the identity of the strange guardian and protector they had found on this savage shore. Esmeralda was positive that it was none other than an angel of the Lord, sent down especially to watch over them. "'Had you seen him devour the raw meat of the lion, Esmeralda,' laughed Clayton, "'you would have thought him a very material angel.' "'There was nothing heavenly about his voice,' said Jane Porter, with a little shudder at recollection of the awful roar which had followed the killing of the lioness. "'Nor did it precisely comport with my preconceived ideas of the dignity of divine messengers,' remarked Professor Porter. "'But when the—' Um, gentlemen, tied two highly respectable and erudite scholars neck to neck, and dragged them through the jungle as though they had been cows. End of chapter. Chapter 17 of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 17. Burials. As it was now quite light, the party, none of whom had eaten or slept since the previous morning, began to bestir themselves to prepare food. The mutineers of the Arrow had landed a small supply of dried meats, canned soups, and vegetables, crackers, flour, tea, and coffee, for the five they had marooned, and these were hurriedly drawn upon to satisfy the craving of long-famished appetites. The next task was to make the cabin habitable, and to this end it was decided to at once remove the gruesome relics of the tragedy which had taken place there on some bygone day. Professor Porter and Mr. Philander were deeply interested in examining the skeletons. The two larger, they stated, had belonged to a male and female of one of the higher white races. The smallest skeleton was given but passing attention, as its location, in the crib, left no doubt as to its having been the infant offspring of this unhappy couple. As they were preparing the skeleton of the man for burial, Clayton discovered a massive ring which had evidently encircled the man's finger at the time of his death, for one of the slender bones of the hand still lay within the golden bauble. Picking it up to examine it, Clayton gave a cry of astonishment, for the ring bore the crest of the house of Greystoke. At the same time Jane discovered the books in the cupboard, and on opening the fly-leaf of one of them saw the name John Clayton, London. In a second book, which she hurriedly examined, was the single name, Greystoke. "'Why, Mr. Clayton,' she cried, "'what does this mean? Here are the names of some of your own people in these books.' "'And here,' he replied gravely, "'is the great ring of the house of Greystoke, which has been lost since my uncle, John Clayton, the former Lord Greystoke, disappeared, presumably lost at sea.' "'But how do you account for these things being here, in this savage African jungle?' exclaimed the girl. "'There is but one way to account for it, Miss Porter,' said Clayton. "'The late Lord Greystoke was not drowned. He died here in this cabin, and this poor thing upon the floor is all that is mortal of him.' "'Then this must have been Lady Greystoke,' 
said Jane reverently, indicating the poor mass of bones upon the bed. "'The beautiful Lady Alice,' replied Clayton, "'of whose many virtues and remarkable personal charms I often have heard my mother and father speak. Poor woman,' he murmured sadly. With deep reverence and solemnity the bodies of the late Lord and Lady Greystoke were buried beside their little African cabin, and between them was placed the tiny skeleton of the baby of Kayla, the ape. As Mr. Philander was placing the frail bones of the infant in a bit of sailcloth, he examined the skull minutely. Then he called Professor Porter to his side, and the two argued in low tones for several minutes. "'Most remarkable! Most remarkable!' said Professor Porter. "'Bless me,' said Mr. Philander. "'We must acquaint Mr. Clayton with our discovery at once.' "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut,' remonstrated Professor Archimedes Q. Porter. "'Let the dead past bury its dead.' And so the white-haired old man repeated the burial service over this strange grave, while his four companions stood with bowed and uncovered heads about him. From the trees Tarzan of the Apes watched the solemn ceremony, but most of all he watched the sweet face and graceful figure of Jane Porter. In his savage, untutored breast new emotions were stirring. He could not fathom them. He wondered why he felt so great an interest in these people, why he had gone to such pains to save the three men. But he did not wonder why he had torn Sabor from the tender flesh of the strange girl. Surely the men were stupid and ridiculous and cowardly. Even Manu, the monkey, was more intelligent than they. If these were creatures of his own kind, he was doubtful if his past pride in blood was warranted. But the girl? Ah, that was a different matter. He did not reason here. He knew that she was created to be protected, and that he was created to protect her. He wondered why they had dug a great hole in the ground merely to bury dry bones. Surely there was no sense in that. No one wanted to steal dry bones. Had there been meat upon them, he could have understood, for thus alone might one keep his meat from Dango, the hyena, and the other robbers of the jungle. When the grave had been filled with earth, the little party turned back toward the cabin and Esmeralda, still weeping copiously for the two she had never heard of before to-day, and who had been dead twenty years, chanced to glance toward the harbor. Instantly her tears ceased. "'Look at them low-down white trash out there!' she trilled, pointing toward the arrow. "'They all's a-desecrating us, right here on this here perverted island!' And, sure enough, the arrow was being worked toward the open sea, slowly, through the harbor's entrance. "'They promised to leave us firearms and ammunition,' said Clayton. "'The merciless beasts!' "'It is the work of that fellow they call Snipes, I am sure,' said Jane. "'King was a scoundrel, but he had a little sense of humanity. If they had not killed him, I know that he would have seen it that we were properly provided for before they left us to our fate.' "'I regret that they did not visit us before sailing,' said Professor Porter. "'I had proposed requesting them to leave the treasure with us, as I shall be a ruined man if that is lost.' Jane looked at her father sadly. "'Never mind, dear,' she said. 
It wouldn't have done any good, because it is solely for the treasure that they killed their officers and landed us upon this awful shore. Tut, tut, child, tut, tut, replied Professor Porter. You are a good child, but inexperienced in practical matters. And Professor Porter turned and walked slowly away towards the jungle, his hands clasped beneath his long coat-tails and his eyes bent upon the ground. His daughter watched him with a pathetic smile upon her lips, and then turning to Mr. Philander she whispered, "'Please don't let him wander off again as he did yesterday. We depend upon you, you know, to keep a close watch upon him.' "'He becomes more difficult to handle each day,' replied Mr. Philander, with a sigh and a shake of his head. I presume he is now off to report to the directors of the zoo that one of their lions was at large last night. Oh, Miss Jane, you don't know what I have to contend with. Yes, I do, Mr. Philander, but while we all love him, you alone are best fitted to manage him. For, regardless of what he may say to you, he respects your great learning, and therefore has immense confidence in your judgment." The poor dear cannot differentiate between erudition and wisdom. Mr. Philander, with a mildly puzzled expression on his face, turned to pursue Professor Porter, and in his mind he was revolving the question of whether he should feel complimented or aggrieved at Miss Porter's rather backhanded compliment. Tarzan had seen the consternation depicted upon the faces of the little group as they witnessed the departure of the arrow. So, as the ship was a wonderful novelty to him in addition, he determined to hasten out to the point of land at the north of the harbor's mouth and obtain a nearer view of the boat, as well as to learn, if possible, the direction of its flight. Swinging through the trees with great speed, he reached the point only a moment after the ship had passed out of the harbor, so that he obtained an excellent view of the wonders of this strange floating house. There were some twenty men running hither and thither about the deck, pulling and hauling on ropes. A light land-breeze was blowing, and the ship had been worked through the harbor's mouth under scant sail. But now that they had cleared the point, every available shred of canvas was being spread, that she might stand out to sea as handily as possible. Tarzan watched the graceful movements of the ship in rapt admiration, and longed to be aboard her. Presently his keen eyes caught the faintest suspicion of smoke on the far northern horizon, and he wondered over the cause of such a thing out on the great water. About the same time the lookout on the arrow must have discerned it, for in a few minutes Tarzan saw the sails being shifted and shortened. The ship came about, and presently he knew that she was beating back toward land. A man at the bows was constantly heaving into the sea a rope to the end of which a small object was fastened. Tarzan wondered what the purpose of this action might be. At last the ship came up directly into the wind, the anchor was lowered, down came the sails. There was great scurrying about on deck. A boat was lowered, and in it a great chest was placed. Then a dozen sailors bent to the oars and pulled rapidly toward the point where Tarzan crouched in the branches of a tree. In the stern of the boat, as it drew nearer, Tarzan saw the rat-faced man. It was but a few minutes later that the boat touched the beach. The men jumped out and lifted the great chest to the sand. 
They were on the north side of the point, so that their presence was concealed from those at the cabin. The men argued angrily for a moment. Then the rat-faced one, with several companions, ascended the low bluff on which stood the tree that concealed Tarzan. They looked about for several minutes. "'Here is a good place,' said the rat-faced sailor, indicating a spot beneath Tarzan's tree. "'It is as good as any,' replied one of his companions. "'If they catch us with the treasure aboard, it will all be confiscated anyway.' We might as well bury it here in that chance that some of us will escape the gallows to come back and enjoy it later. The rat-faced one now called to the men who had remained at the boat, and they came slowly up the bank carrying picks and shovels. "'Hurry, you!' cried Snipes. "'Stow it!' retorted one of the men in a surly tone. "'You're no admiral, you damn shrimp!' "'I'm captain here, though. I'll have you understand, you swab!' shrieked Snipes with a volley of frightful oaths. "'Steady, boys,' cautioned one of the men who had not spoken before. "'It ain't going to get us nothing but fighting amongst ourselves.' "'Right enough,' replied the sailor who had resented Snipes' autocratic tones. "'But it ain't a-going to get nobody nothing to put on airs in this bloomin' company, neither.' "'You fellas dig here,' said Snipes, indicating a spot beneath the tree. And while you're digging, Peter can be a makin' a map of the location so's we can find it again. You, Tom, and Bill, take a couple more down and fetch up the chest. What are you a going to do? Asked he of the previous altercation. Just boss. Get busy there, growled Snipes. You didn't think your captain was a going to dig with a shovel, did you? The men all looked up angrily. None of them liked Snipes, and this disagreeable show of authority since he had murdered King, the real head and ringleader of the mutineers, had only added fuel to the flames of their hatred. "'Do you mean to say that you don't intend to take a shovel and lend a hand with this work? Your shoulder's not hurt so all-fired bad as that,' said Tarrant, the sailor who had before spoken. "'Not by a damn sight!' replied Snipes, fingering the butt of his revolver nervously. "'Then by God,' replied Tarrant, "'if you won't take a shovel, you'll take a pickaxe.' With the words he raised his pick above his head, and with a mighty blow he buried the point in Snipes' brain. For a moment the men stood silently looking at the result of their fellow's grim humor. Then one of them spoke. "'Serve this skunk jolly well right,' he said. One of the others commenced to ply his pick to the ground. The soil was soft, and he threw aside the pick and grasped a shovel. Then the others joined him. There was no further comment on the killing, but the men worked in a better frame of mind than they had since Snipes had assumed command. When they had a trench of ample size to bury the chest, Tarrant suggested that they enlarge it and inter Snipes' body on top of the chest. It might help fool any as happened to be digging hereabouts. He explained. The others saw the cunning of the suggestion, and so the trench was lengthened to accommodate the corpse, and in the center a deeper hole was excavated for the box, which was first wrapped in sailcloth, and then lowered to its place, which brought its top about a foot below the bottom of the grave. Earth was shoveled in and tramped down about the chest until the bottom of the grave showed level and uniform. 
Two of the men rolled the rat-faced corpse unceremoniously into the grave, after first stripping it of its weapons and various other articles which the several members of the party coveted for their own. They then filled the grave with earth, and tramped upon it until it would hold no more. The balance of the loose earth was thrown far and wide, and a mass of dead undergrowth spread in as natural a manner as possible over the new-made grave to obliterate all signs of the ground having been disturbed. Their work done, the sailors returned to the small boat, and pulled off rapidly toward the arrow. The breeze had increased considerably, and as the smoke upon the horizon was now plainly discernible in considerable volume, the mutineers lost no time in getting under full sail and bearing away toward the southwest. Tarzan, an interested spectator of all that had taken place, sat speculating on the strange actions of these peculiar creatures. Men were indeed more foolish and more cruel than the beasts of the jungle. How fortunate was he who lived in the peace and security of the great forest! Tarzan wondered what the chest they had buried contained. If they did not want it, why did they not merely throw it into the water? That would have been much easier. Ah, he thought, but they do want it. They have hidden it here because they intend returning for it later. Tarzan dropped to the ground and commenced to examine the earth about the excavation. He was looking to see if these creatures had dropped anything which he might like to own. Soon he discovered a spade hidden by the underbrush which they had laid upon the grave. He seized it and attempted to use it as he had seen the sailors do. It was awkward work and hurt his bare feet, but he persevered until he had partially uncovered the body. This he dragged from the grave and laid to one side. Then he continued digging until he had unearthed the chest. This also he dragged to the side of the corpse. Then he filled in the smaller hole below the grave, replaced the body and the earth around and above it, covered it over with underbrush, and returned to the chest. Four sailors had sweated beneath the burden of its weight. Tarzan of the apes picked it up as though it had been an empty packing-case, and with the spade slung to his back by a piece of rope, carried it off into the densest part of the jungle. He could not well negotiate the trees with his awkward burden, but he kept to the trails and so made fairly good time. For several hours he traveled a little north of east until he came to an impenetrable wall of matted and tangled vegetation. Then he took to the lower branches, and in another fifteen minutes he emerged into the amphitheater of the apes, where they met in council, or to celebrate the rites of the dum-dum. Near the center of the clearing, and not far from the drum or altar, he commenced to dig. This was harder work than turning up the freshly excavated earth at the grave, but Tarzan of the Apes was persevering, and so he kept at his labor until he was rewarded by seeing a hole sufficiently deep to receive the chest and effectually hide it from view. Why had he gone to all this labor without knowing the value of the contents of the chest? Tarzan of the Apes had a man's figure and a man's brain, but he was an ape by training and environment. His brain told him that the chest contained something valuable, or the men would not have hidden it. His training had taught him to imitate whatever was new and unusual, and now the natural curiosity, which is as common to men as to apes, prompted him to open the chest and examine its contents. But the heavy lock and massive iron bands baffled both his cunning 
and his immense strength, so that he was compelled to bury the chest without having his curiosity satisfied. By the time Tarzan had hunted his way back to the vicinity of the cabin, feeding as he went, it was quite dark. Within the little building a light was burning, for Clayton had found an unopened tin of oil which had stood intact for twenty years, a part of the supplies left with the Claytons by Black Michael. The lamps also were still usable, and thus the interior of the cabin appeared as bright as day to the astonished Tarzan. He had often wondered at the exact purpose of the lamps. His reading and the pictures had told him what they were, but he had no idea of how they could be made to produce the wondrous sunlight that some of his pictures had portrayed them as diffusing upon all surrounding objects. As he approached the window nearest the door, he saw that the cabin had been divided into two rooms by a rough partition of boughs and sailcloth. In the front room were the three men, the two older deep in argument, while the younger, tilted back against the wall on an improvised stool, was deeply engrossed in reading one of Tarzan's books. Tarzan was not particularly interested in the men, however, so he sought the other window. There was the girl. How beautiful her features! How delicate her snowy skin! She was riding at Tarzan's own table beneath the window. Upon a pile of grasses at the far side of the room lay the negress asleep. For an hour Tarzan feasted his eyes upon her while she wrote. How he longed to speak to her, but he dared not attempt it, for he was convinced that, like the young man, she would not understand him, and he feared, too, that he might frighten her away. At length she arose, leaving her manuscript upon the table. She went to the bed upon which had been spread several layers of soft grasses. These she rearranged. Then she loosened the soft mass of golden hair which crowned her head. Like a shimmering waterfall turned to burnished metal by a dying sun, it fell about her oval face. In waving lines, below her waist it tumbled. Tarzan was spellbound. Then she extinguished the lamp, and all within the cabin was wrapped in Sumerian darkness. Still Tarzan watched. Creeping close beneath the window, he waited, listening, for half an hour. At last he was rewarded by the sounds of the regular breathing within which denotes sleep. Cautiously he intruded his hand between the meshes of the lattice until his whole arm was within the cabin. Carefully he felt upon the desk. At last he grasped the manuscript upon which Jane Porter had been writing, and as cautiously withdrew his arm and hand, holding the precious treasure. Tarzan folded the sheets into a small parcel which he tucked into the quiver with his arrows. Then he melted away into the jungle, as softly and as noiselessly as a shadow. End of chapter Chapter 18 of Tarzan of the Apes This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 18 The Jungle Toll 
Early the next morning Tarzan awoke, and his first thought of the new day, as the last of yesterday, was of the wonderful writing which lay hidden in his quiver. Hurriedly he brought it forth, hoping against hope that he could read what the beautiful white girl had written there the preceding evening. At the first glance he suffered a bitter disappointment. Never before had he so yearned for anything as now he did for the ability to interpret a message from that golden-haired divinity who had come so suddenly and so unexpectedly into his life. What did it matter if the message were not intended for him? It was an expression of her thoughts, and that was sufficient for Tarzan of the Apes. And now to be baffled by strange, uncouth characters the like of which he had never seen before. Why, they even tipped in the opposite direction from all that he had ever examined, either in printed books or the difficult script of the few letters he had found. Even the little bugs of the black book were familiar friends, though their arrangement meant nothing to him but these bugs were new and unheard of. For twenty minutes he pored over them, when suddenly they commenced to take familiar, though distorted, shapes. Ah, they were his old friends, but badly crippled. Then he began to make out a word here and a word there. His heart leaped for joy. He could read it, and he would. In another half-hour he was progressing rapidly, and but for an exceptional word now and again he found it very plain sailing. Here is what he read. West coast of Africa, about ten degrees south latitude, so Mr. Clayton says, February 3, question mark, 1909. Dearest Hazel, it seems foolish to write you a letter that you may never see, but I simply must tell somebody of our awful experiences since we sailed from Europe on the ill-fated arrow. If we never return to civilization, as now seems only too likely, this will at least prove a brief record of the events which led up to our final fate, whatever it may be. As you know, we were supposed to have set out upon a scientific expedition to the Congo, Papa was presumed to entertain some wondrous theory of an unthinkably ancient civilization, the remains of which lay buried somewhere in the Congo Valley. But after we were well under sail, the truth came out. It seems that an old bookworm who has a book and curio shop in Baltimore discovered between the leaves of a very old Spanish manuscript a letter written in 1550 detailing the adventures of a crew of mutineers of a Spanish galleon bound from Spain to South America, with a vast treasure of doubloons and pieces of eight, I suppose, for they certainly sound weird in piratey. The writer had been one of the crew, and the letter was to his son, who was, at the very time the letter was written, master of a Spanish merchantman. Many years had elapsed since the events the letter narrated had transpired, and the old man had become a respected citizen of an obscure Spanish town, but the love of gold was still so strong upon him that he risked all to acquaint his son with the means of obtaining fabulous wealth for them both. The writer told how, when but a week out from Spain, the crew had mutinied and murdered every officer and man who opposed them, but they defeated their own ends by this very act, for there was none left competent to navigate a ship at sea. They were blown hither and thither for two months, until, sick and dying of scurvy, starvation, and thirst, 
they had been wrecked on a small islet. The galleon was washed high upon the beach where she went to pieces, but not before the survivors, who numbered but ten souls, had rescued one of the great chests of treasure. This they buried well up on the island, and for three years they lived there in constant hope of being rescued. One by one they sickened and died, until only one man was left, the writer of the letter. The men had built a boat from the wreckage of the galleon, but having no idea where the island was located, they had not dared to put it to sea. When all were dead except himself, however, the awful loneliness so weighed upon the mind of the sole survivor that he could endure it no longer, and choosing to risk death upon the open sea rather than madness on the lonely isle, he set sail in his little boat after nearly a year of solitude. Fortunately he sailed due north, and within a week was in the track of the Spanish merchantmen plying between the West Indies and Spain, and was picked up by one of these vessels homeward bound. The story he told was merely one of shipwreck in which all but a few had perished, the balance, except himself, dying after they reached the island. He did not mention the mutiny or the chest of buried treasure. The master of the merchantmen assured him that from the position at which they had picked him up, and the prevailing winds for the past week, he could have been on no other island than one of the Cape Verde group, which lie off the west coast of Africa in about sixteen or seventeen degrees north latitude. His letter described the island minutely as well as the location of the treasure, and was accompanied by the crudest, funniest little old map you ever saw, with trees and rocks all marked by scrawly X's to show the exact spot where the treasure had been buried. When Papa explained the real nature of the expedition, my heart sank, for I know so well how visionary and impractical the poor dear has always been that I feared that he had again been duped especially when he told me he had paid a thousand dollars for the letter and map. To add to my distress, I learned that he had borrowed ten thousand dollars more from Robert Candler, and had given his notes for the amount. Mr. Candler had asked for no security, and you know, dearie, what that will mean for me if Papa cannot meet them. Oh, how I detest that man! We all tried to look on the bright side of things, but Mr. Philander and Mr. Clayton he joined us in London just for the adventure, both felt as skeptical as I. Well, to make a long story short, we found the island and the treasure, a great iron-bound oak chest, wrapped in many layers of oiled sailcloth, and as strong and firm as when it had been buried nearly two hundred years ago. It was simply filled with gold coin, and was so heavy that four men bent underneath its weight. The horrid thing seems to bring nothing but murder and misfortune to those who have anything to do with it. For three days after we sailed from the Cape Verde Islands, our own crew mutinied and killed every one of their officers. Oh, it was the most terrifying experience one could imagine. I cannot even write of it. They were going to kill us, too, but one of them, the leader, named King, would not let them, and so they sailed south along the coast to a lonely spot where they found a good harbor, and here they landed and have left us. They sailed away with the treasure today, but Mr. Clayton says they will meet with a fate similar to the mutineers of the ancient galleon, because King, the only man aboard who knew aught of navigation, 
was murdered on the beach by one of the men the day we landed. I wish you could know Mr. Clayton. He is the dearest fellow imaginable, and unless I am mistaken he has fallen very much in love with me. He is the only son of Lord Greystoke, and some day will inherit the title and estates. In addition, he is wealthy in his own right, but the fact that he is going to be an English lord makes me very sad. You know what my sentiments have always been relative to American girls who married titled foreigners. Oh, if he were only a plain American gentleman! But it isn't his fault, poor fellow, and in everything except birth he would do credit to my country, and that is the greatest compliment I know how to pay any man. We have had the most weird experiences since we were landed here. Papa and Mr. Philander lost in the jungle, and chased by a real lion. Mr. Clayton lost, and attacked twice by wild beasts. Esmeralda and I cornered in an old cabin by a perfectly awful man-eating lioness. Oh, it was simply terrifical, as Esmeralda would say. But the strangest part of it all is the wonderful creature who rescued us. I have not seen him, but Mr. Clayton and Papa and Mr. Philander have, and they say that he is a perfectly godlike white man, tanned to a dusky brown, with the strength of a wild elephant, the agility of a monkey, and the bravery of a lion. He speaks no English, and vanishes as quickly and as mysteriously after he has performed some valorous deed as though he were a disembodied spirit. Then we have another weird neighbor, who printed a beautiful sign in English, and tacked it on the door of his cabin, which we have preempted, warning us to destroy none of his belongings, and signing himself Tarzan of the Apes. We have never seen him, though we think he is about, for one of the sailors who was going to shoot Mr. Clayton in the back received a spear in his shoulder from some unseen hand in the jungle. The sailors left us but a meager supply of food, so, as we have only a single revolver with but three cartridges left in it, we do not know how we can procure meat, though Mr. Philander says that we can exist indefinitely on the wild fruit and nuts which abound in the jungle. I am very tired now, so I shall go to my funny bed of grasses which Mr. Clayton gathered for me, but will add to this from day to day as things happen. Lovingly, Jane Porter. To Hazel Strong, Baltimore, Maryland. Tarzan sat in a brown study for a long time after he finished reading the letter. It was filled with so many new and wonderful things that his brain was in a whirl as he attempted to digest them all. So they did not know that he was Tarzan of the Apes. He would tell them. In his tree he had constructed a rude shelter of leaves and boughs, beneath which, protected from the rain, he had placed a few treasures brought from the cabin. Among these were some pencils. He took one, and beneath Jane Porter's signature he wrote, I am Tarzan of the Apes. He thought that would be sufficient. Later he would return the letter to the cabin. In the matter of food, thought Tarzan, they had no need to worry. He would provide, and he did. The next morning Jane found her missing letter in the exact spot from which it had disappeared two nights before. She was mystified, but when she saw the printed words beneath her signature, she felt a cold, clammy chill run up her spine. She showed the letter, or rather the last sheet with the signature, to Clayton. "'And to think,' she said, 
That uncanny thing was probably watching me all the time that I was writing. Ooh, it makes me shudder just to think of it. But he must be friendly, reassured Clayton, for he has returned your letter, nor did he offer to harm you, and unless I am mistaken he left a very substantial memento of his friendship outside the cabin door last night, for I just found the carcass of a wild boar there as I came out. From then on scarcely a day passed that did not bring its offering of game or other food. Sometimes it was a young deer, again a quantity of strange cooked food, cassava cakes pilfered from the village of Mabonga, or a boar, or leopard, and once a lion. Tarzan derived the greatest pleasure of his life in hunting meat for these strangers. It seemed to him that no pleasure on earth could compare with laboring for the welfare and protection of the beautiful white girl. Some day he would venture into the camp in daylight and talk with these people through the medium of the little bugs which were familiar to them and to Tarzan. But he found it difficult to overcome the timidity of the wild thing of the forest, and so day followed day without seeing a fulfillment of his good intentions. The party in the camp, emboldened by familiarity, wandered farther and yet farther into the jungle in search of nuts and fruit. Scarcely a day passed that did not find Professor Porter straying in his preoccupied indifference towards the jaws of death. Mr. Samuel T. Philander, never what one might call robust, was worn to the shadow of a shadow through the ceaseless worry and mental distraction resultant from his Herculean efforts to safeguard the professor. A month passed. Tarzan had finally determined to visit the camp by daylight. It was early afternoon. Clayton had wandered to the point at the harbor's mouth to look for passing vessels. Here he kept a great mass of wood, high-piled, ready to be ignited as a signal should a steamer or a sail top the far horizon. Professor Porter was wandering along the beach south of the camp with Mr. Philander at his elbow, urging him to turn his steps back before the two became again the sport of some savage beast. The others gone, Jane and Esmeralda had wandered into the jungle to gather fruit, and in their search were led farther and farther from the cabin. Tarzan waited in silence before the door of the little house until they should return. His thoughts were of the beautiful white girl. They were always of her now. He wondered if she would fear him, and the thought all but caused him to relinquish his plan. He was rapidly becoming impatient for her return, that he might feast his eyes upon her and be near her, perhaps touch her. The ape-man knew no god but he was as near to worshipping his divinity as mortal man ever comes to worship. While he waited he passed the time printing a message to her, whether he intended giving it to her he himself could not have told, but he took infinite pleasure in seeing his thoughts expressed in print, in which he was not so uncivilized after all. He wrote, I am Tarzan of the apes. I want you. I am yours. You are mine. We live here together always in my house. I will bring you the best of fruits, the tenderest deer, the finest meats that roam the jungle. I will hunt for you. I am the greatest of the jungle fighters. I will fight for you. I am the mightiest of the jungle fighters. You are Jane Porter. I saw it in your letter. 
When you see this you will know that it is for you and that Tarzan of the Apes loves you. As he stood, straight as a young Indian, by the door, waiting after he had finished the message, there came to his keen ears a familiar sound. It was the passing of a great ape through the lower branches of the forest. For an instant he listened intently, and then from the jungle came the agonized scream of a woman, and Tarzan of the Apes, dropping his first love-letter upon the ground, shot like a panther into the forest. Clayton also heard the scream, and Professor Porter and Mr. Philander, and in a few minutes they came panting to the cabin, calling out to each other a volley of excited questions as they approached. A glance within confirmed their worst fears. Jane and Esmeralda were not there. Instantly Clayton, followed by the two old men, plunged into the jungle, calling the girl's name aloud. For half an hour they stumbled on, until Clayton by merest chance came upon the prostrate form of Esmeralda. He stopped beside her, feeling for her pulse, and then listening for her heartbeats. She lived. He shook her. "'Esmeralda!' he shrieked in her ear. "'Esmeralda, for God's sake, where is Miss Porter? What has happened? Esmeralda!' Slowly Esmeralda opened her eyes. She saw Clayton. She saw the jungle about her. "'Oh, Gabrielle!' she screamed and fainted again. By this time Professor Porter and Mr. Philander had come up. "'What shall we do, Mr. Clayton?' asked the old professor. "'Where shall we look? God could not have been so cruel as to take my little girl away from me now.' "'We must arouse Esmeralda first, replied Clayton. "'She can tell us what has happened.' "'Esmeralda!' he cried again, shaking the black woman roughly by the shoulder. "'Oh, Gabrielle, I want to die!' cried the poor woman, but with eyes fast closed. "'Let me die, dear Lord, don't let me see that awful face again!' "'Come, come, Esmeralda!' cried Clayton. "'The Lord isn't here, it's Mr. Clayton. Open your eyes!' Esmeralda did as she was bade. "'Oh, Gabrielle, thank the Lord!' she said. "'Where's Miss Porter? What happened?' questioned Clayton. "'Ain't Miss Jane here?' cried Esmeralda, sitting up with wonderful celerity for one of her bulk. "'Oh, Lord, now I remember! It must have took her away!' And the negress commenced to sob and wail her lamentations. "'What took her away?' cried Professor Porter. "'A great big giant all covered with hair!' "'A gorilla, Esmeralda?' questioned Mr. Philander and the three men scarcely breathed as he voiced the horrible thought. "'I thought it was the devil, but I guess it must have been one of them gorillaphants. Oh, my poor baby, my poor little honey!' And again Esmeralda broke into uncontrollable sobbing. Clayton immediately began to look about for tracks, but he could find nothing save a confusion of trampled grasses in the close vicinity and his woodcraft was too meagre for the translation of what he did see. All the balance of the day they sought through the jungle, but as night drew on they were forced to give up in despair and hopelessness, for they did not even know in what direction the thing had borne Jane. It was long after dark ere they reached the cabin, and a sad and grief-stricken party it was that sat silently within the little structure. Professor Porter finally broke the silence. His tones were no longer those of the erudite pedant, 
theorizing upon the abstract and the unknowable, but those of the man of action, determined, but tinged also by a note of indescribable hopelessness and grief, which wrung an answering pang from Clayton's heart. "'I shall lie down now,' said the old man, "'and try to sleep. Early to-morrow, as soon as it is light, I shall take what food I can carry, and continue the search until I have found Jane. I will not return without her.' His companions did not reply at once. Each was immersed in his own sorrowful thoughts, and each knew, as did the old professor, what the last words meant. Professor Porter would never return from the jungle. At length Clayton arose and laid his hand gently upon Professor Porter's bent old shoulder. "'I shall go with you, of course,' he said. "'I knew that you would offer, that you would wish to go, Mr. Clayton, but you must not. Jane is beyond human assistance now. What was once my dear little girl shall not lie alone and friendless in the awful jungle. The same vines and leaves will cover us, the same rains beat upon us, and when the spirit of her mother is abroad it will find us together in death, as it has always found us in life. No, it is I alone who may go, for she was my daughter, all that was left on earth for me to love. I shall go with you said Clayton simply. The old man looked up, regarding the strong, handsome face of William Cecil Clayton intently. Perhaps he read there the love that lay in the heart beneath, the love for his daughter. He had been too preoccupied with his own scholarly thoughts in the past to consider the little occurrences, the chance words, which would have indicated to a more practical man that these young people were being drawn more and more closely to one another. Now they came back to him, one by one. "'As you wish,' he said. "'You may count on me also,' said Mr. Flander. "'No, my dear old friend,' said Professor Porter. "'We may not all go. It would be cruelly wicked to leave poor Esmeralda here alone, and three of us would be no more successful than one. There be enough dead things in the cruel forest as it is. Come.' Let us try to sleep a little. End of chapter. Chapter 19 of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 19 The Call of the Primitive From the time Tarzan left the tribe of great anthropoids in which he had been raised, it was torn by continual strife and discord. Turkoz proved a cruel and capricious king, so that, one by one, many of the older and weaker apes, upon whom he was particularly prone to vent his brutish nature, took their families and sought the quiet and safety of the far interior. But at last those who remained were driven to desperation by the continued truculence of Turcos, and it so happened that one of them recalled the parting admonition of Tarzan. "'If you have a chief who is cruel, do not do as the other apes do, and attempt, any one of you, 
to pit yourself against him alone. But, instead, let two or three or four of you attack him together. Then, if you will do this, no chief will dare to be other than he should be, for four of you can kill any chief who may ever be over you. And the ape who recalled this wise counsel repeated it to several of his fellows, so that when Turkoz returned to the tribe that day he found a warm reception awaiting him. There were no formalities. As Turkoz reached the group, five huge hairy beasts sprang upon him. At heart he was an errant coward, which is the way with bullies among apes as well as among men, so he did not remain to fight and die, but tore himself away from them as quickly as he could, and fled into the sheltering boughs of the forest. Two more attempts he made to rejoin the tribe, but on each occasion he was set upon and driven away. At last he gave it up, and turned, foaming with rage and hatred, into the jungle. For several days he wandered aimlessly, nursing his spite and looking for some weak thing on which to vent his pent anger. It was in this state of mind that the horrible, man-like beast, swinging from tree to tree, came suddenly upon two women in the jungle. He was right above them when he discovered them. The first intimation Jane Porter had of his presence was when the great hairy body dropped to the earth beside her, and she saw the awful face and the snarling hideous mouth thrust within a foot of her. One piercing scream escaped her lips as the brute hand clutched her arm. Then she was dragged toward those awful fangs which yawned at her throat. But ere they touched that fair skin, another mood claimed the anthropoid. The tribe had kept his women. He must find others to replace them. This hairless white ape would be the first of his new household, and so he threw her roughly across his broad hairy shoulders and leaped back into the trees, bearing Jane away. Esmeralda's scream of terror had mingled once with that of Jane, and then, as was Esmeralda's manner under stress of emergency which required presence of mind, she swooned. But Jane did not once lose consciousness. It is true that that awful face, pressing close to hers, and the stench of the foul breath beating upon her nostrils, paralyzed her with terror, but her brain was clear, and she comprehended all that transpired. With what seemed to her marvellous rapidity the brute bore her through the forest, but still she did not cry out or struggle. The sudden advent of the ape had confused her to such an extent that she thought now that he was bearing her toward the beach. For this reason she conserved her energies and her voice, until she could see that they had approached near enough to the camp to attract the succour she craved. She could not have known it, but she was being borne farther and farther into the impenetrable jungle. The scream that had brought Clayton and the two older men stumbling through the undergrowth had led Tarzan of the apes straight to where Esmeralda lay, but it was not Esmeralda in whom his interest centred, though pausing over her he saw that she was unhurt. For a moment he scrutinized the ground below and the trees above until the ape that was in him by virtue of training and environment, combined with the intelligence that was his by right of birth, told his wondrous woodcraft the whole story as plainly as though he had seen the thing happen with his own eyes. And then he was gone again into the swaying trees, following the high-flung spore which no other human eye could have detected, much less translated. At bow's ends, 
where the anthropoid swings from one tree to another, there is most to mark the trail, but least to point the direction of the quarry, for there the pressure is downward always, toward the small end of the branch, whether the ape be leaving or entering a tree. Nearer the center of the tree, where the signs of passage are fainter, the direction is plainly marked. Here, on this branch, a caterpillar has been crushed by the fugitive's great foot, and Tarzan knows instinctively where that same foot would touch in the next stride. Here he looks to find a tiny particle of the demolished larva, oft-times not more than a speck of moisture. Again a minute bit of bark has been upturned by the scraping hand, and the direction of the break indicates the direction of the passage. Or some great limb or the stem of the tree itself has been brushed by the hairy body, and a tiny shred of hair tells him by the direction from which it is wedged beneath the bark that he is on the right trail. Nor does he need to check his speed to catch these seemingly faint records of the fleeing beast. To Tarzan they stand out boldly against all the myriad other scars and bruises and signs upon the leafy way. But strongest of all is the scent for Tarzan is pursuing up the wind, and his trained nostrils are as sensitive as a hound's. There are those who believe that the lower orders are specially endowed by nature with better olfactory nerves than man, but it is merely a matter of development. Man's survival does not hinge so greatly upon the perfection of his senses. His power to reason has relieved them of many of their duties, and so they have, to some extent, atrophied as have the muscles which move the ears and scalp, merely from disuse. The muscles are there, about the ears and beneath the scalp, and so are the nerves which transmit sensations to the brain, but they are underdeveloped because they are not needed. Not so with Tarzan of the Apes. From early infancy his survival had depended upon acuteness of eyesight, hearing, smell, touch, and taste, far more than upon the more slowly developed organ of reason. The least developed of all in Tarzan was the sense of taste, for he could eat luscious fruits, or raw flesh, long buried with almost equal appreciation, but in that he differed but slightly from more civilized epicures. Almost silently the ape-man sped on in the track of Turkoz and his prey, but the sound of his approach reached the ears of the fleeing beast, and spurred it on to greater speed. Three miles were covered before Tarzan overtook them, and then Terkoz, seeing that further flight was futile, dropped to the ground in a small open glade, that he might turn and fight for his prize, or be free to escape unhampered if he saw that the pursuer was more than a match for him. He still grasped Jane in one great arm, as Tarzan bounded like a leopard into the arena which nature had provided for this primeval-like battle. When Terkoz saw that it was Tarzan who pursued him, he jumped to the conclusion that this was Tarzan's woman, since they were of the same kind, white and hairless, and so he rejoiced at this opportunity for double revenge upon his hated enemy. To Jane the strange apparition of this godlike man was as wine to sick nerves. From the description which Clayton and her father and Mr. Philander had given her, she knew that it must be the same wonderful creature who had saved them, and she saw in him only a protector and a friend. But as Turkoz 
pushed her roughly aside to meet Tarzan's charge, and she saw the great proportions of the ape, and the mighty muscles, and the fierce fangs, her heart quailed. How could any vanquish such a mighty antagonist? Like two charging bulls they came together, and like two wolves sought each other's throat. Against the long canines of the ape was pitted the thin blade of the man's knife. Jane, her lithe young form flattened against the trunk of a great tree, her hands tightly pressed against her rising and falling bosom, and her eyes wide with mingled horror, fascination, fear, and admiration, watched the primordial ape battle with the primeval man for possession of a woman, for her. As the great muscles of the man's back and shoulders knotted beneath the tension of his efforts, and the huge biceps and forearm held at bay those mighty tusks, the veil of centuries of civilization and culture were swept from the blurred vision of the Baltimore girl. When the long knife drank deep a dozen times of Tercoz's heart's blood, and the great carcass rolled lifeless upon the ground, it was a primeval woman who sprang forward with outstretched arms toward the primeval man who had fought for her and won her. And Tarzan? He did what no red-blooded man needs lessons in doing. He took his woman in his arms, and smothered her upturned, panting lips with kisses. For a moment Jane lay there with half-closed eyes. For a moment, the first in her young life, she knew the meaning of love. But as suddenly as the veil had been withdrawn, it dropped again, and an outraged conscience suffused her face with its scarlet mantle and a mortified woman thrust Tarzan of the apes from her, and buried her face in her hands. Tarzan had been surprised when he had found the girl he had learned to love, after a vague and abstract manner, a willing prisoner in his arms. Now he was surprised that she repulsed him. He came close to her once more, and took hold of her arm. She turned upon him like a tigress, striking his great breast with her tiny hands. Tarzan could not understand it. A moment ago, and it had been his intention to hasten Jane back to her people, but that little moment was lost now in the dim and distant past of things which were, but can never be again, and with it the good intentions had gone to join the impossible. Since then Tarzan of the apes had felt a warm, lithe form close-pressed to his, hot, sweet breath against his cheek and mouth had fanned a new flame to life within his breast, and perfect lips had clung to his in burning kisses that had seared a deep brand into his soul, a brand which marked a new Tarzan. Again he laid his hand upon her arm. Again she repulsed him. And then Tarzan of the apes did just what his first ancestor would have done. He took his woman in his arms and carried her into the jungle. Early the following morning, the four within the little cabin by the beach were awakened by the booming of a cannon. Clayton was the first to rush out, and there, beyond the harbour's mouth, he saw two vessels lying at anchor. One was the Arrow, and the other a small French cruiser. The sides of the latter were crowded with men gazing shoreward, and it was evident to Clayton, as to the others who had now joined him that the gun which they had heard had been fired to attract their attention, if they still remained at the cabin. Both vessels lay at a considerable distance from shore, 
and it was doubtful if their glasses would locate the waving hats of the little party far in between the harbour's points. Esmeralda had removed her red apron and was waving it frantically above her head. But Clayton, still fearing that even this might not be seen, hurried off toward the northern point, where lay his signal pyre ready for the match. It seemed an age to him, as to those who waited breathlessly behind, ere he reached the great pile of dry branches and underbrush. As he broke from the dense wood and came in sight of the vessels again, he was filled with consternation to see that the arrow was making sail, and that the cruiser was already under way. Quickly lighting the pyre in a dozen places, he hurried to the extreme point of the promontory, where he stripped off his shirt, and tying it to a fallen branch, stood waving it back and forth above him. But still the vessels continued to stand out, and he had given up all hope, when the great column of smoke, rising above the forest in one dense vertical shaft, attracted the attention of a lookout aboard the cruiser, and instantly a dozen glasses were leveled on the beach. Presently Clayton saw the two ships come about again, and while the arrow lay drifting quietly on the ocean, the cruiser steamed slowly back toward shore. At some distance away she stopped, and a boat was lowered and dispatched toward the beach. As it was drawn up, a young officer stepped out. "'Monsieur Clayton, I presume?' he asked. "'Thank God you have come,' was Clayton's reply. "'And it may be that it is not too late even now.' "'What do you mean, monsieur?' asked the officer. Clayton told of the abduction of Jane Porter, and the need of armed men to aid in the search for her. "'Mon Dieu!' exclaimed the officer sadly. "'Yesterday, and it would not have been too late. Today, and it may be better that the poor lady were never found. It is horrible, monsieur, it is too horrible.' Other boats had now put off from the cruiser, and Clayton, having pointed out the harbour's entrance to the officer, entered the boat with him, and its nose was turned toward the little landlocked bay, into which the other craft followed. Soon the entire party had landed where stood Professor Porter, Mr. Philander, and the weeping Esmeralda. Among the officers in the last boats to put off from the cruiser was the commander of the vessel, and when he had heard the story of Jane's abduction, he generously called for volunteers to accompany Professor Porter and Clayton in their search. Not an officer or a man was there of those brave and sympathetic Frenchmen who did not quickly beg leave to be one of the expedition. The commander selected twenty men and two officers, Lieutenant Darnot and Lieutenant Charpentier. A boat was dispatched to the cruiser for provisions, ammunition, and carbines. The men were already armed with revolvers. Then, to Clayton's inquiries as to how they had happened to anchor offshore and fire a signal gun, the commander, Captain Dufran, explained that a month before they had sighted the arrow bearing southwest under considerable canvas, and that when they had signaled her to come about she had but crowded on more sail. They had kept her hull up until sunset, firing several shots after her, but the next morning she was nowhere to be seen. They had then continued to cruise up and down the coast for several weeks, and had about forgotten the incident of the recent chase, when, early one morning a few days before, the lookout had described a vessel laboring in the trough of a heavy sea, and evidently entirely out of control. 
As they steamed nearer to the derelict they were surprised to note that it was the same vessel that had run from them a few weeks earlier. Her forestaysail and mizzen spanker were set as though an effort had been made to hold her head up into the wind, but the sheets had parted, and the sails were tearing to ribbons in the half-gale of wind. In the high sea that it was running it was a difficult and dangerous task to attempt to put a prize-crew aboard her, and as no signs of life had been seen above deck, it was decided to stand by until the wind and sea abated, but just then a figure was seen clinging to the rail and feebly waving a mute signal of despair toward them. Immediately a boat's crew was ordered out, and an attempt was successfully made to board the arrow. The sight that met the Frenchmen's eyes as they clambered over the ship's side was appalling. A dozen dead and dying men rolled hither and thither upon the pitching deck, the living intermingled with the dead. Two of the corpses appeared to have been partially devoured as though by wolves. The prize crew soon had the vessel under proper sail once more, and the living members of the ill-starred company carried below to their hammocks. The dead were wrapped in tarpaulins and lashed on deck, to be identified by their comrades before being consigned to the deep. None of the living was conscious when the Frenchman reached the arrow's deck. Even the poor devil who had waved the single despairing signal of distress had lapsed into unconsciousness before he had learned whether it had availed or not. It did not take the French officer long to learn what had caused the terrible condition aboard, for when water and brandy were sought to restore the men, it was found that there was none, nor even food of any description. He immediately signalled to the cruiser to send water, medicine, and provisions, and another boat made the perilous trip to the Arrow. When restoratives had been applied, several of the men regained consciousness, and then the whole story was told. That part of it we know up to the sailing of the Arrow, after the murder of Snipes, and the burial of his body above the treasure-chest. It seems that the pursuit by the cruiser had so terrorized the mutineers that they had continued out across the Atlantic for several days after losing her, but on discovering the meagre supply of water and provisions aboard, they had turned back toward the east. With no one on board who understood navigation, discussions soon arose as to their whereabouts, and as three days sailing to the east did not raise land, they bore off to the north, fearing that the high north winds that had prevailed had driven them south of the southern extremity of Africa. They kept on a north-northeasterly course for two days, when they were overtaken by a calm which lasted for nearly a week. Their water was gone, and in another day they would be without food. Conditions changed rapidly from bad to worse. One man went mad and leaped overboard. Soon another opened his veins and drank his own blood. When he died they threw him overboard also though there were those among them who wanted to keep the corpse on board. Hunger was changing them from human beasts to wild beasts. Two days before they had been picked up by the cruiser, they had become too weak to handle the vessel, and that same day three men died. On the following morning it was seen that one of the corpses had been partially devoured. All that day the men lay glaring at each other like beasts of prey, in the following morning two of the corpses lay almost entirely stripped of flesh. 
the men were but little stronger for their ghoulish repast, for the want of water was by far the greatest agony with which they had to contend. And then the cruiser had come. When those who could had recovered, the entire story had been told to the French commander, but the men were too ignorant to be able to tell him at just what point on the coast the professor and his party had been marooned. So the cruiser had steamed slowly along within sight of land, firing occasional signal guns, and scanning every inch of the beach with glasses. They had anchored by night so as not to neglect a particle of the shoreline, and it had happened that the preceding night had brought them off the very beach where lay the little camp they sought. The signal guns of the afternoon before had not been heard by those on shore, it was presumed, because they had doubtless been in the thick of the jungle searching for Jane Porter, for the noise of their own crashing through the underbrush would have drowned the report of a far distant gun. By the time the two parties had narrated their several adventures, the cruiser's boat had returned with supplies and arms for the expedition. Within a few minutes the little body of sailors and the two French officers, together with Professor Porter and Clayton, set off upon their hopeless and ill-fated quest into the untracked jungle. End of chapter.